Man, what an exciting time to be with you this morning. The first day of the week, we come together as the family of God to celebrate our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And what a joy it is to look into your eyes and be together as we encourage each other on the journey. You know, we, we say this every Sunday that we get together, but it's not trivial, it's not cliche, it's true. What a blessing we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. We know that he's the ultimate overcomer, and so we can overcome what life throws our way in him. And so we come together to lift his name up in praise, to dig into the word of God, to discover how we're called to live, and live that life out as best we can, to be lights in the community in which we find ourselves. I also know we've got some guests here this morning. Thank you for joining us, being a part of our time together. We would hope if you're looking for a church home, you might consider joining us in telling that message of hope that is Jesus Christ. There are lots of ways to get plugged in around here, whether that is in a connect group where you do a Bible study with a smaller group of people, journey together, pray together, live life together, or maybe as big as headed to Kenya this summer or Honduras this summer on a mission trip with us. Lots of ways to use your giftedness to tell the story of Christ right here in Grand Prairie at Cross Point. We're glad you're here today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12 this morning as we continue our study uh, in this series we're calling Beautiful Interference. And I want to start with reminding all of us, what does the title really mean, Beautiful Interference? And it comes really out of Mark chapter 1 where we are reminded Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. And as he's teaching, there is a man that's possessed, comes into the room, toe-to-toe with Jesus, runs right up to him and he says... Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Why are you interfering with us? And if you and I were totally honest, we've asked that question ourselves of Jesus. Because our calendars are absolutely full. We've got so much going on in our life, whether that is with the kids, with schooling, cooking meals, being with our spouse, our career, whatever might be going on, our hobbies. We just don't leave a lot of margin to truly live out life like God's called us to live through his son, Jesus Christ. What Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love other people the same way. How do we love God with every fiber of our being, with everything that we are? How do we do that? And so we're using this series to kind of unpack that very idea. And we started a couple of weeks ago uh, discovering how do we love God with all of our heart. And last week we took took a look at how do we love God with all of our soul. Today we're going to unpack how do we love God with all of our mind. And you have to admit, in your own life, you've done some crazy things along the way. You've made some decisions to do some things that your friends looked at you and said, that's nuts. You're a little crazy. That's illogical for you to do that. Maybe, maybe it was when you were in high school and you made a decision to, to ask out that cheerleader or the homecoming queen. Or maybe that most popular guy at school. And when you told your friend group you were going to do that, they said, you're crazy. They're never going to go for it. You're kind of in this camp and they're over in this camp. They're never going to connect with you. No, it's, it's, it's a bad decision. Or maybe it was an investment that you wanted to make in a company or a stock. And when you kind of talked to your friend group about that idea, they said, bad idea. Don't do that. Illogical. Doesn't make sense. It's a little crazy. Don't waste your money like that. Or maybe as an adult, you made a decision to learn how to snow ski like my dad did a few years ago. I wish I had video of that. It was great. (laughs) He vowed he would never get on a mountain to snow ski again. But you've had those moments in life where you made decisions 
that later somebody might have told you, I'm not sure about that. That's a little nuts. That's a little crazy. I remember in 1981, I was in the seventh grade. We lived in Glenwood, Arkansas. We lived in a little parsonage, uh, a little ranch-style home, one level. We had a detached garage. We didn't park our cars in. That's kind of where we stored everything. And I lived in a preacher's home, of course, and so that meant we had lots of rules. And one of those rules were when you came home from school, you took off your school clothes and you put on your play clothes. And play clothes were simply school clothes that were too tight. (laughs) I hear some laughter. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So sure enough, I had thought about what we were going to do to kind of entertain ourselves. Because once we got home and changed clothes, mom would be cooking dinner. And she would kind of kick us out of the house. Go find something to do. Get out of here. I'll call you when dinner is ready. And so the three boys, we would have to figure out what we're going to do for the afternoon. The short time before we sat down for dinner. Well, I had been thinking about this one idea for a long time and hadn't told any friends. Didn't tell my brothers. Certainly didn't tell my parents because they would have said, no way, Jose, are you going to do that? But I remember getting home that one day when I decided to pull the trigger on this and And I went and changed my clothes and then went out to the garage. Mom was cooking in the kitchen on one end of the house. I walked into the garage where we kept everything and I grabbed a ladder and I brought it out and took it to the opposite end of the house. My mom was on one end, I'm on the other end, and I leaned the ladder up against the house. And then I casually walk over to the carport and I grab my garage sale banana seat bike. Yes, I owned it. It was mine banana seat and all, took it down to the ladder, and I began that dangerous, treacherous journey up that ladder with my bicycle, little seventh grader. It didn't weigh a whole lot, but I finally got that bike to the roof line, threw it up on the roof, and I was ready for the adventure. Climbed up on the roof, sat on the apex for a moment, watched traffic go by a little bit, a few honks here and there, a few moms leaning out the window, get down off that... But see, I thought about this idea. How many of you have ever heard of Evil Knievel? Anybody read Yeah, the younger generation doesn't know it. Look him up. He's awesome. So I thought, this is what I'm going to do today to entertain myself. I'm going to ride my bicycle off the roof of the house. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. So I had kind of thought through the process, and I checked the air in the tires. They were good. I checked the, the, the wind direction. It was good. The, the adrenaline was pumping within me. It was good. I thought I had a good plan. Because once you get to the end of the roof line, there's a gutter, and that's the last flat place on the roof. And I thought, hey, once I hit the flat spot, I can pop a wheelie, come off the roof, land on the ground. It'll be tight. It'll be awesome. Now, seventh graders don't talk too much about what guttering is really for. See, when there's a big rain, it collects water and it takes it to a downspout, which then takes it away from the foundation of the house. Guttering is not really, really made to hold any kind of weight. Oh, yeah, you see where this is going. So I worked the courage up. It was now or never. Mom was going to call us in for dinner. And so I began my descent, very quick descent, down the roof of that house. I got to the gutter and I went to Papa Willie, but the minute the tire was on the guttering, it simply folded into the faucet and I went right over the side of the roof. The bike landed on top of me. It was a single-story house, praise God. It was only 10 feet. (laughs) 
And I could never have been more happy that someone years before had thought of planting a hedge bush right there at that window because <laughs> it broke the fall. Well, I, I laid there for a moment, got the bicycle off of me, kind of checked for any nicks and abrasions, broken bones, brain laying out on the ground. I, I didn't know. I stood up and I realized everything was okay. And I ran inside the house to the kitchen and I gave my mom the biggest hug she'd ever seen. And I told her I loved her. And I walked back outside to clean up the mess. Now, parents, let me tell you something. If your kid runs in at Mach 3 and hugs you for no apparent reason, that kid almost killed himself. I'm telling you. <laughs> it's true. But you've had moments in life where you made a decision to do something. Someone else looked at that and said, that's nuts. That's crazy. What are you thinking? That's illogical. And see, the world looks at us for following Jesus Christ, and they say the same exact thing to us. But what I know and what you know is that we follow and serve a risen Savior. And if he can conquer the grave, he can do anything. My faith is in that risen Savior which pulls me into his story that he's doing in the world and helps me to do some things along the way that the world looks at and says, that's nuts, that's crazy. Why would you waste your time there? And I stand up and rejoice because of a risen Savior. That's why I do it. And they look at us following that incredible man called Jesus and think, what in the world are you doing? There's story after story in the world of, of men and women who've decided to, to go out of their comfort zone, to do things that the world would say are absolutely nuts. One of those men that I admire is a guy by the name of Bob Goff. And I've heard him speak many times. He's a Christian author, but he's also an attorney in California. I don't know how many of you have read this book before, Love Does, but it's a great book. Put it on your list if it's not there yet. But he shows in his own life how Christ is part of his story. He's part of God's story and how all of that comes to fruition. Now, we don't have time to tell you all the story of how he got to where he was. So I'm just going to jump in on the story. Bob got a phone call one day. This is, a, again, a Christian man who's an attorney who cares about kids, who wants to be a light in his community, wants to do the right thing for God. And he gets a call one day, and on the other end of the line, it's a voice that says, Bob, we'd love for you to be the American consul to Uganda. Now, Uganda is a country in Africa, and it borders the country of Kenya, which is the, uh, the country where the orphanage is that we support. So Bob thought it's one of his friends playing a joke. And so he chuckles and laughs and he says, sure, why not? I've got nothing else to do. Only to realize a couple of weeks later that it was the real thing. It was the president of Uganda who was calling him, asking him to be the American consul to Uganda. And so now he's in like Flint. He's part of the process. And so he goes to meet with the group over there. He collects his own team and they fly over and they meet with the president. Now, there's been about 20 years of civil war in Uganda at this point, which means that the adult population has gone way down drastically. As a matter of fact, today, the average age in Uganda is 15 years old, the median age. 78% of the population is ages 30 and below. Bob loves kids, 
and he loves God, and he wants to do the right thing. Well, during the Civil War, the, the justice system didn't really work appropriately because people were scared to get out. The justices of the peace would not go to other towns and do the civil court like they were supposed to. And so there were a lot of kids who had been accused of crimes and had been arrested and put in jail but had never seen the inside of a courtroom. They had been in jail for two, three years. And some of those kids didn't even know what they were accused of. Some of those kids had maybe in a village kind of made eyes at another man's daughter. And over there, all you have to do as a father is to say, this young man had sexual relations with my daughter, and that day he'll be arrested and put in jail, awaiting trial. Some of these kids have been in jail two and three years. Bob wants to do something about that. So he gets his team, he gets the president of Uganda, the, the high chief justice and other legalities in a room, and they talk for about two days on what the justice system should look like, what kids' rights should look like, what child trafficking is really all about. And at the end of the day, Bob and his team says, can we try some of these cases? Because the justices have not been able to go to towns, and so he picks this town called Gulu. He goes there and they begin to sort through all the different cases that they have been given. They've been given 72 of these cases. Now remember, Bob is a Christian man, but he's also an attorney. He's using his mind for the cause of Christ. He wants to be a light in the community, not only in his community, but around the world. And so as each case comes to bear, they bring in the family, the parents of the child that's been accused and is in jail, and the parents of the other party, they bring them into a room and they begin to arbitrate and talk. Can you believe that at the end of the day, 70 kids went home with charges dropped out of 72 cases that they took a look at? Why? Because Bob wants to do something in the name of Jesus Christ. And the world will look at that and think, Bob, you're not getting paid for that. You're, you're wasting your degree in a country like Uganda. Why would you do that? Well, it's because of Jesus. I want to be a light in the community. I want to do something in the story of God. I want to make a difference. I'm called to live things, the life out I've been given in Christ in great and different ways. So he does that very thing. Well, in Uganda, there's also this tradition of witch doctors. Witch doctors are scary individuals. The whole population believes in them and the magic that they do and what they do. The witch doctors believe, and 33 million people also believe. When I lived in Africa, I saw witch doctors in costume dancing in my front yard to a drumbeat to make sure the evil spirits would stay away. It's a scary moment. Nobody wants to approach or mess with a witch doctor. You know, in the entire history of Uganda, not one witch doctor had ever been brought to trial for the crimes that they had done. Bob knew that. Witch doctors have this, this moment where if they, if they have the head of a child or the blood of a child or the genitalia of a child, they can sell that to a home or a business and if it's, if it's buried under the foundation of that home or business, it's supposed to bring luck and goodwill to that particular location. And so witch doctors do this quite a bit. Child trafficking and murder. But no one has ever brought them to justice. Bob wants to stop 
this. As a Christian man, as a light in the world, as someone who's been sent into the story of God, he wants to make things different. And so he talks to the chief high justice and he says, listen, if there's ever a a moment where this is possible to go to trial, I want to be a part of that process. I want to do it. And the chief justice says, you got two problems with your situation. Number one, the victims are always dead. No one is there to point the finger on who did it. Secondly, no judge in our country will ever try a case because they're scared to death of the magic the witch doctor will do. And Bob said, I understand. But if it ever happens, call me. I want to be the attorney involved. So one day there's a guy by the name of Charlie. Charlie is eight years old and he's walking to school. And as he walks to school, he's abducted by a witch doctor and taken into the jungle where with a machete, his genitalia is removed. Everything is cut off. The witch doctor leaves Charlie for dead. But Charlie doesn't die. And Charlie points the finger at the most prominent witch doctor in the area, a guy named Cobb. Cobby is arrested and put in jail. A phone call is made to Bob Goff. We now have a victim and someone who's willing to testify. Bob, all he has to do is find a judge that will take it to trial. And in Bob's words, he found a scrappy little judge on the border between Uganda and Congo who would try the case. They took the case to court, and for the first time in Uganda's history, a witch doctor was convicted and sentenced to death row. Because a Christian man decided to be a light in the community and do what the world would say is crazy, is nuts for the cause of Christ. But we realize in the story that that Charlie is still in trouble. He's got some things missing. But a friend of Bob's, who is the chief surgeon at Sinai, a hospital in L.A., calls him and he says, Hey, this is my specialty. I can fix Charlie. And Bob says with a chuckle, I don't think you understand. There's nothing there to fix. It's all gone. And the surgeon says, No, that's my specialty. Bob says, I couldn't afford to do this for Charlie at all. And the chief surgeon says, We'll take care of that. You just get him here. And so Bob flies to Uganda, picks up Charlie, who, by the way, has never even seen an airplane, gets on the airplane, and while they're in Uganda, gets a call from the White House because Obama now has heard about the story. He wants to encourage Charlie on his journey. Come by the White House when you get back to the States. And so they land in Washington, D.C. first and take a trip to the White House where he gets a tour and some praise and adoration and encouragement for the journey and then on to the hospital in L.A. where the doctor truly does fix Charlie 100% and Charlie is doing really well today. Charlie is where he is now. Cobby is where he is now because one man decided to do something what the world would say is crazy. You've got a degree in law Go make some money. You live in California. That should be easy to do. Why would you do that? Was because I serve Jesus Christ and I want to be a light in this world. I want to do some things crazy to you, but right on target for me. But in Bob's world, he's still thinking about Kabi. He knows that things still aren't right because he looks at Kabi and he sees evil incarnate. And so he makes a decision to fly back to Uganda. And because he's consul, he has access to the prison system. He gets to go into Kabi's cell 
And immediately, Kavi falls on his knees with tears running out of, down his face. And Kavi says, I need forgiveness. What I did was wrong. I know it was wrong. That's not how we're called to live. And Bob says, I didn't want to forgive him, but I know that's what Jesus would do. He goes on to say, we don't have to know everything about forgiveness in order to offer forgiveness. And so they begin to talk about why he went into the, the field of witch doctrine. And Bob talked about the life of Jesus and how it could change his life. And they begin to talk and they made a commitment that Bob would come back every 60 days to talk to Kavi in prison. And he did that. And over time, this main witch doctor in the area gave his life to Jesus, was baptized, forgiven, and immediately started talking to the other 3,000 death row inmates about how Jesus can change your life. And church, we know that Jesus can change our life. He's an incredible Savior. He wants to do so much for us. Bob wanted to be a light for Jesus Christ in the world in which he lived. And it reminds me of a story in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. See, there's a king by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the ruler of Babylon. And in 586, the Babylons attacked Judah and Jerusalem, sacked the town, and took everybody into as a prisoner, back to the land of Babylon. Three young men who were nobility from the tribe of Judah finally rose to, to prominence in that 70-year excursion, and they served King Nebuchadnezzar. But in chapter 3, it's interesting because King Nebuchadnezzar decides to build an idol that everyone is going to worship. This idol is nine stories tall. This room is about 30 feet, so this room is about a third of the height of that idol. And he says, whenever the band plays, everyone's going to take a knee. It doesn't matter where you're from, what skin color you are, what you had for breakfast this morning. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Everyone is going to take a knee. And if you don't take a knee, there's a penalty of death involved in the process. And so sure enough, the symphony shows up. The music begins to play. And everybody, wherever they're at, takes a knee, bowing to this false god, this idol, except for three guys from Judah. They're governors in the province. The noblemen who don't like that tell on them, tell the king that these guys are not bowing down, and so they're brought into the king's court. Can you imagine for a moment in your own life, in your home, in your family, and extended family, you were the only one who believed a specific thing. Everyone else was on board somewhere else, but you decided to do something totally different. You're standing alone in the story. Imagine that in your workplace, where you alone decide to be the light that Jesus calls you to be, and no one else is on board with that. You stand alone for your conviction and who you're called to be in your neighborhood, to be that person standing alone. No one else helps, but you're willing to serve. You see, these three guys are just like that. They serve God, the God of Israel. They're not going to take any. And so they're brought into the king's court, and he asks if it's true. He gives them one more shot. You can bow when the music starts to pray, play right now, or I'm going to throw you into a furnace. And the three guys tell the king of the known world at that time, 
Our God is strong enough and powerful enough to rescue us from that fire. But if he doesn't, we will never bow to your false God. If he doesn't, we're willing to die so that we'll never bow to a false God. And the text says that the king's face contorted and he got so angry. He had the three men bound he had the furnace pumped up to seven times hotter than it was originally. You and I know these three men as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The soldiers took the three men to the door of the furnace, and when they opened it and pushed them into the furnace, the Bible says that it was so hot that it even incinerated the soldiers that were there to bring them to the door. And the king sat back in his chair to watch their skin melt off of their bodies. And he leans forward to look in. And he brings a nobleman over and he says, Did we throw three guys in there? Why are there four? And they're walking around as if they're at a picnic. What's going on? And the text later says that he realizes that the God of Israel is the one true God. And he calls the men out of the furnace. They come out and the text says that their clothing didn't even smell like smoke. Because they decided to stand when everyone else was kneeling. You see, we're called to live that type of life in Jesus Christ. Where the world looks at decisions that we make and we decide to stand for Jesus Christ and they look at us and they think, you're nuts, you're crazy. Why in the world would you do that? Why would you serve? Why would you give up that money? Why would you not follow this career path? Why wouldn't you get back at this person? Well, it's because we serve a risen Savior, church. And we go by a different script than the world has for each and every one of us. You see, we're called to live life in such a way that we live our lives out with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength for the glory of God. Paul puts it this way when he writes the church in Corinth, chapter 5, verse 13, beginning. Paul says, if it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Christ's love controls us. Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive this new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Church, we've been called to live differently. We've been called to live thinking through how we are disciples of Christ and how that calls us to live in the life of Jesus around us. It's okay, church, to be a little crazy for Jesus. It's okay to step out of the box for Jesus Christ. So be risky. Be creative. Do the stuff that you were made for. You don't have to see all the steps. Just take the next one. Because Jesus says we're called to live in such a way that we love God with every fiber of our being, with everything we have in our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love people the same way. Paul reminds us in his letter to the church in Ephesus, I beg you, 
to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Church, we are empowered with the Holy Spirit. And we have Jesus Christ as our example of how to love those around us with every piece of who we are. It's time for you and I to make a decision to let our lives be beautifully interrupted by the story of Jesus Christ. That we would be willing to create margin in our life to tell the story of Jesus Christ using words and actions. That you and I would be willing to be interrupted for a God who loves you more than life itself. He sent his son for you. As we sing this song, our shepherds are going to be gathered along the wall of this room. And let me encourage you as we sing, maybe there's something going on in your life that you need some encouragement in. Go find one of those shepherd couples and let them pray for you and over you. Let them remind you that you're not in this thing alone. You've got the family of God here with you and the Holy Spirit living in you. It's time, church, that you and I make a decision to be interrupted in our busy life for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now let's stand and praise his name together.